0: Okay. Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics!
1: Comic books. An art form that'll be alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. host, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Welcome, lovelies, to another show... Of... Excellence. Yes. Um, <laughs> I just looked at Michael eating a donut and completely lost my train of thought. Why does that always happen at the very beginning of a show? We'll sit here and we'll talk for a couple of minutes, but what are going to talk about at the beginning? And then we'll start and I'll just up!
0: We don't script our beginnings anymore.
1: No, we don't. We don't script the beginnings. You may be able to tell that, lovely listeners. Um, interesting stuff this week. Mm-hmm. The Marvel, I don't know why we do this, because it's out of date by the time it goes up, but yeah. Marvel have announced that on Netflix they are going to do TV series for Daredevil, yeah. Iron Fist, yep. Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, mm-hmm. and it will all lead to an, a Defenders team-up. I am quite excited about this. I am mm-hmm. fist, dude. Now I can marvel of the rights to Daredevil now. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Mm. So we may a good Daredevil movie. Yeah. Although I don't hate the other one. I think the other one, the director's cut's pretty good. It's still not a. Still not it's a, great. The director's though,
0: cut of a not very good film. It's it's
1: better than the cut he was forced to release by Avi Arad. Yeah. So,
0: but yeah, Power Man. I I like the idea of an uh, Alias TV show. I like the
1: idea of Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. Just a Luke Cage TV show
0: because it writes itself, doesn't it? In the
1: comics, he was in jail for a crime he didn't commit. It's in the comics. It's right there for you. And then the experiment goes wrong, and he's believed to be dead. This is, this is fantastic. That's an 80s TV show set up right
0: there. Yep. you think they're actually going to go along with that, though. Why not? Because we're all in... Postmodern bleak depressing... Yeah, well, what you,
1: you don't—that wouldn't be your setup now for the entire series, like it would be in the '80s. But your first seasons, right there, especially if you establish that the experiment that turns him rock hard, who mm-hmm. were misses, uh, in terms of bullets bouncing off him and stuff, was a shield experiment. So the right. people hunting him, are shield. So he's on the run from Shield. All the while, trying to find the guy who put him in prison, framed him for the crime that he went to prison for. So it's... Fa- and that would culminate at the end of the first season.
0: Fair enough. So it ties into S.H.I.E.L.D. as well. Yeah. Fair enough. I, think, I mean,
1: I don't know if that's doable with S.H.I.E.L.D. being on ABC and these being Netflix, but it's all Marvel Disney, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I presume that would be perfectly doable. It's a real shame we don't have Netflix. So anyway, so I'm, I'm most excited about the Luke Cage Well. But uh, Michael Bailey and I pitched an awesome daredevil, but I need to find out what we said because I damned if I can remember what we said. It was cool though. I'm sure it was. It was. It was. It was very excellent. So, which one are you most excited for? The Jessica Jones one. Do you want them to do a literal adaptation of Alias? Yeah. With all the swearing and anal. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. Anyway, that was that was it for us mm-hmm. this week. Uh, so, should we do a few emails? I, don't I think we should. yeah. Should we start the show with an email? Some say. <laughs> he likes the brother voodoo character far more than he likes Iron Man. <laughs> and that, of these Netflix movie TV show things, he wants a brother voodoo show. <laughs> All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetti. Hello, Luke. Wait to see if he replies. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Andrew. <laughs> That is so going to freak me out one day. <laughs> this is it. Is the subject headed? This is my thesis favorite Batman stories part one. My dear British batcasters. Oh, I do like being
0: a batcaster. Same bat time. Same, same, same bat, channel, bat. Same, channel. same batcaster. <laughs> yeah, i quite like
1: that. This whole episode is like the proof of concept of the Batman Minimum Appreciation Index. I could submit this as a doctoral dissertation. As befitting the Batman Minimum Appreciation Index, from now on called the BMAI, the stories compiled in this episode by Andy and Michael were all over the map, literally in the case of Batman Inc., and covered all sorts of aspects of the cape Crusader. And that's the great part of such a show, or series of shows, because of the wide net cast by Batman. There's room for all sorts of interpretations and stories to be told with the Dark Knight Detective. One of the stories Andy excluded is one of my all-time favourites, Faces, from Legends of the Dark Knight. I'm a big fan of Two-Face, so this story, which mix- mixed the duality-obsessed baddie with Todd Browning's seminal horror classic, Freaks, is right up my alley. I'm pretty sure that Faces was the first Batman story I purchased with my own money. It was either that or the prestige format two-issue flipbook mini miniseries Two-Face strikes twice. Yeah, Faces is awesome. Matt Wagner okay you never read that one no really is very very good it only got uh, eliminated on on behalf of length yeah it's a five issue story arc that's the only reason I eliminated it from the uh, the countdown Luke continues, obviously not surprised by the amount of Morrison in Michael's choices, but I enjoyed hearing his clear enthusiasm for these stories, which I tended to dismiss when they were current. Go on. No, there was only two. It was only two. It was two. Is <laughs> you defending yourself? I, I'm, I'm trying to. Yeah. Fair enough. I will say that I have always liked the concept of the Black Casebook—that the outlandish science fiction-style stories of the '50s did happen, but perhaps not exactly in the way presented in the comics. This acceptance of previously dismissed stories, to me, brings Batman in line with characters like Superman, Flash, Wonder Woman, etc., who all had bizarre Silver Age stories which were typically not questioned like Batman's were. Amusingly, Matt Fraction utilised a similar approach to some of the crazier parts of Iron Man's history in a Point One issue, with Tony referring to elements such as The Crossing, Teen Tony, Heroes Reborn, and so forth, with the simple phrase... Life got weirder. These things happened, but that was the past. I like the acknowledgement without needing to fix these older stories. I was a big fan of whatever happened to the Cape Crusader. It reminded me a lot of this show. Everyone was gathered together to swap stories about Batman. The bit which stuck with me the most was Alfred's tale, which to me was touching and heartfelt, but also examined the relationship between Bruce and Alfred. Of all the interpersonal relationships which form the structure of Batman's life, this relationship between Alfred and Bruce is the most interesting. Andy mentioned the time when Detective Comics were 100-page giants. I do not own any of these, but they drive me crazy. I'm always on the lookout for them because of the Hortman backups, but they remain pretty pricey in the back issue bins. I don't own any 100-page Batmans. Fair enough. They are quite expensive. Really fun episode. You guys can't wait to hear the other selections. Luke, you're very welcome, Luke. Once we're on the topic of
0: uh, best Batman stories... Ever! Issue 24... Of the new of zero the new year It's is yeah. pretty damned awesome. I've not read that one yet because somebody stole it from my stash. It's pretty damned awesome. Uh, well, it's okay. part one of the next zero year story, despite the fact it's the conclusion to the first zero year story. But other than, okay. that, other than that, it is awesome. So, uh,
1: and when they ultimately trade a zero year, it's yeah. not going to be one nice big fat trade to that. Probably is not. going to be sections. Probably. Yeah. I hate it when they do that. Mm. It's bad enough that you write for the trade, but now you're writing for multiple <laughs> trades. Yeah, the art the art in it is
0: really nice because it's, it's Capola. No, they've it. made really subtle touches with the artwork and the coloring. Yeah. So that it's a, a homage to really old early Batman stories. Right. I mean, some of the colors are yellow and orange. There's the, like yellow skies, mm. but it's so well done. You just, it, it doesn't stick out. Right, we may cover zero year then, when it finishes, in about a year. Yeah. <laughs>
1: another year before it finishes. Um, alright, okay, uh, for another email, yeah, we'll squeeze another email. Uh, the email is from David Main. Hello, David. Hey, guys, I just wanted to tell you how much I love your show. Well, feel free <laughs> to tell us that as much as you want. we bask what what happened to go go tell us how much you like I did skip the title of the email didn't I I've been listening for at least a year now and I think you guys do a great job I've often had a different opinion on certain things but your show is just so damned entertaining I can't stop listening to it (laughs) that's almost as good as you guys suck but you suck so well I like you well thank you David we appreciate that I don't mind people disagreeing with me Mm kind of used to it by now can't make everyone be right no that's true I've come to the conclusion that you guys are just smarter than me, <laughs> and that is why we see things
0: differently. I was right, you can't make it be right. <laughs> I don't, oh, I don't agree with that, David. I don't, I don't. We edit this to make us look yeah, smart. Yeah, so we're doing a good job somewhere. Yeah,
1: so it's, it's the post production that makes us look clever. For example, Andy often chastises DC Comics writers for beating you over the head with certain ideas, and this frustrates him. I seem to recall this being especially true when you reviewed Constantine number 1. The big thing you need to realise, they do this for dense people like me. Don't be so self-deprecating, David. Don't get me wrong, I consider myself a pretty intelligent person. However, I don't have a literary background. I chose my major, mathematics, specifically, so I wouldn't have to read or write in college. (laughs) Very clever. Say, you know, that's an intelligent man. I'm just a poor high school mathematics teacher. Subtext goes right over my head. Keep up the great work, and I can't wait for the next show. You're a loyal listener from Wine Country, California, David May. Uh, David, if you can do maths, you have my ultimate admiration. <laughs> I love people that can do maths, don't I? I have a lot of respect for people that can do maths. P.S. Yes, no pressure, but if you stop doing the show and Michael goes to college, you will ruin my life. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Fair enough. We'll 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 try and think of something. Skype. Yeah, well aren't they making it so you can't record Skype calls anymore? Was, didn't I read that somewhere today? Uh,
0: just just put audacity on what you're having a call. Is that all it is? There's way there's ways around it. Alright, fair enough. Uh David Gutierrez has emailed in on Spider Man Blue,
1: which is the title of the email, which is I I like that. Leyland's David. <laughs> I just finished listening to your two parts from Spider Man Blue. Did we do that as two parts? I thought we did that as one. I can't remember. Oh, I can't. Well, we did that as one. Anyway. Great pair of Podcast. Sadly, I never noticed the recurring theme of Peter initially failing to stop a criminal, only to have that criminal commit a former highness act later. I can't believe I missed that with Gwen. I was discussing the series framing device with my wife, as it always struck me as odd that Mary Jane would be perfectly fine with her husband dictating a letter to the girl who had always been known as the one he initially wanted to marry. I can't see how MJ would see herself as anything other than Peter making the best of his situation. If you can't be with the one you love, etc. I asked my wife what she would think if she caught me doing the same thing Peter was doing. Needless to say, tell her hello from me was not the thing she would say. In fact, she asked if this story had been written by a man. No way a woman would go for that crap. So there you go, a woman's point of view. Yeah, I think Anne said the same thing, didn't she? How many years has it been since Captain America White was announced? Oh, it was older than the hills. God, is it four years now?
0: No Is it more than that? I'm sure they solicited an issue zero a few years ago They did, an issue zero came out, yeah. Did it actually come out? I believe it
1: did, yeah. All right. But none of the subsequent series ever happened. Fair enough. So, you know. Keep up the great work, David. You're very welcome, David. Uh, thank you very much for emailing it. We appreciate everyone who has emailed. Next one's a short one. It's Damien. Damien Lee. Damien General Lee. Hello, Damien. <laughs> Spider Man issue 75 evening. Just a quick note on the above issue that was in your Spidey Top 10 way back. I'm reading the complete Ben Reilly Epic Volume 6, which includes, along with 14 extra pages of story, A Spider-Man 75, as well as a total recolour. Given it's an excellent issue, and from when I came back to Spidey post-Clone Saga that I reread not long ago at your prompting, the extra pages aren't jarring. Still awesome, John Romita Jr., but they do seem like a director's cut version of such an important issue. Just thought you might enjoy it. Always listening, Damien. I think we did look at the extra pages, didn't we? I
0: don't know. When we
1: covered Spider-Man 75. I thought we did look at the extra pages, because there was something about now they're all very important characters attending the wake and then there's Jimmy Six and you're like this is a character that means nothing anymore no I don't remember one of the many supporting characters that has fallen by the wayside Uh, yeah go on we'll do another one best of Batman Chris Franklin hey Leylands. greetings again from Kentucky It goes without saying that I thoroughly enjoyed your two-part trip through your own personal Batcave trophy rooms. Once again, Andrew and I are on similar wavelengths, with many of his picks being personal favourites of mine as well, in particular The Brave and the Bold issue 182, which cemented my love for all things Earth 2, and is yet another masterpiece by Alan Brennett, who wrote only a handful of comic stories, but all of them are standouts and many are Batman. Another one of his tales that I consider my all-time favourite, done in one, is To Kill a Legend, from Detective Comics issue 500. The combo of Brennett and Aparo in his prime, and Brave and the Bold as you want it to is only the icing on the cake of a story featuring the Earth 2 Robin who I've always found to be fascinating. And I like those yellow pants. See... I was right there with you, <laughs> Chris, you, you, we, were, we were there until you liked the yellow trousers. It seems kind of an odd choice now, what with all the post-Tim Drake costumes we've seen, but that costume was downright distinguished compared to the classic Robin costume. And yes, Michael is right, the grown-up Robin on Batman the Brave and the Bold animated series did indeed wear the Earth 2 Robin uniform before becoming Nightwing later in the run.
0: I do like hearing those words. What Michael was right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, they don't happen a lot. On a similar note, I really did like that proto Robin costume Jason Todd wore in his early appearances. All it needed was the R icon somewhere, and voila, new cool Robin costume. Uh, Yeah, I I liked. I didn't like the wrestler's belt. Yeah, but I like the rest of it I thought the rest of the costume was pretty good I'm glad to hear some praise for the very underrated Don Newton I grew up reading his Batman stories and quite saddened to read he had died in Dick Giordano's heartfelt meanwhile column Newton Titans 39 and Batman 368 were earth shattering stories for this Robin fan I couldn't believe it was happening Dick Grayson was never going to be robbing again and he hasn't been aside from Elseworlds Parallel Universes and flashbacks. but as you pointed out it was handled so well that even at 8 years old I had to accept it it's too bad future writers didn't get the quiet dignity the moment of talk Passing hard and opted for juicy backbiting And family feuds Sigh Son of the Demon's an odd book if you think about it It's clearly the Bronze Age Batman of O'Neill's stories globe-trotting, mixing it up with Ra's and Talia But with a more modern tone Do you know what, not, yeah
0: mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely I'd never considered that, you're absolutely right Chris It is Denny O'Neill's Batman Done in the 80s Yeah It's not 1989's Batman Son of the Demon, is it? It is very much a '70s Batman, but with an '80s coat of paint. Maybe that's why I like it so much. Maybe entirely possible. Chris continues, I think it was part of that transition period Andrew spoke of where the pre- and post-crisis versions were in flux and that Batman has emerged quite different from what we had before. Barr's Batman is pre-Miller, but in his own way harkens back to the harder Batman of the golden age who didn't cry much for murderers and human scum. Barr's Batman took a similar hard stance with Ra's in the earlier Batman Annual number 8 you mentioned, letting his arch-foe disintegrate apparently and not really being too broken up about it. The fact that Barr could write such a Batman but also have him refer to Robin as his chum is a testament to Barr getting the character better than most, and I thoroughly loved his and Davis's run on tech. It did seem to be quickly forgotten in prose crisis land, though, although Leslie Compton's been a doctor stuck, if nothing else. I have to say, I haven't read many of Michael's picks, but your coverage of them piqued my interest. I find most of DC's output to be far too fixated on rape, mutilation and other disturbing and supposedly mature themes, but maybe that's just me. I read Snyder's storyline involving Jim Gordon's son, and whilst it was well written, I thought it tainted the characters too much, and especially made Batman's heroic actions in Batman Year One seem tragic considering what young James grew up into. I think modern writers' insistence on going places best left alone is what turns me off about most of today's comics. The days of strong editors who refused to cave in to writers' whims for the sake of one story, who realised they were only temporary caretakers of the character and should maintain some semblance of sameness for those who followed, is long gone. I myself consider this a bad thing, but others may disagree. I, d- I think it just depends on the story. I mean, there's been that recent thing that they were Tony Stark's going to find out he's adopted, and okay. there doesn't seem to have been a huge kick up or fuss about it. Yeah, but. I'm only left, I'm not reading Iron Man so it may be exceptionally good, I don't know but my first thought was how does this improve the character
0: overall in the know, grand scheme of things I don't know how that works Well you'd have to read it to find out how it pans well, out I, I suppose. guess, see they've gotten yeah. one digital
1: sale But my thinking is how does that improve the character in the whole Yeah. as opposed to what are we doing for this story hmm. I mean I suppose I could always just ignore it Forevermore. Yeah. i just never mention it again. You know, like since past. Of Andrew's picks, I own and have read them all, save for one Night of the Stalker. Yes, somehow, despite my vast Batman collection, I don't have a copy of that story. The 100-page giant issues are quite pricey, and I've never looked into a cheap reading copy of that one, although I have many of the other 100 pages. See, somebody who has the 100 pages, whereas Luke and I don't have any. I've seen the final page in Mark Cotter excellent Tales of the Dark Knight Batman history book and I've even read Darwin Cook's reworking, but not the original. I know I should turn in my Batman and Robin society button. <laughs> Oh, one more thought on the subject of status quo in comics. I think so-called permanent change must be looked at on a case-by-case basis. In particular, did the creators know it was a short-term change, or did they honestly believe that was it, and from now on, nothing would be the same? Both Barry Allen and Hal Jordan were meant to be permanently replaced, no doubt about it. I would say those were definite status quo changes, even though Dan DiDio Dan did them two seconds after he walked in the door at DC. I would also consider Clark Kent's job at WGBS to be the same kind of change. Jean-Paul Valley was not. Reign of the Superman, Electric Superman, Superman Red and Blue were not. The creators knew the real normal Superman would return. Thanks again for an engaging set of episodes and look forward to your 150th extravaganza. P.S. On the subject of Batman, I forgot to mention that I was a guest on one of the Fire and Water's Power Records podcast with Rob Kelly, author of the excellent Hey Kids Comics book go and buy it. We examined two of the DC power records, one being Robin meets Man Bat. I thought it's appropriate to bring up, given the Bat festivities. It was great fun talking about this childhood favourite with the always entertaining and We also discussed the man from Krypton featuring, uh, well, you know. Here's the episode if you could to sample it and he sent us a link, so I will be listening to that. Okie dokie. Uh, that'll do nicely for tonight I think, for we have a lot to get through and a special guest appearance. Do it, Yes. From Stephen Lacey. So, all right. Okay, we'll take a break. I'll be right back. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> <clears throat> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more Hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the
0: dare?
1: And we're back. We are. But today Michael's not eating anything. Because no, he's already stuffed his face with doughnut. Uh-huh. This year marks the 50th anniversary of a television show pretty much unlike any other in the history of the media. Its flexible format and constantly rotating cast, including the lead, has meant it has weathered the storm of popular opinion becoming a thing unto itself. It's an integral part of British culture. Everybody born in this country has at least a rudimentary knowledge of the show and has been its critical darling and the butt of its cruel jokes. The show is, of course, Doctor Who. Debuting on November 23rd, 1963, Doctor Who was originally proposed to be a simple historical drama that would teach kids and bridge the gap between the kids' programmes of the early Saturday afternoon and the more adult-themed programming of later in the evening. By developing this framework of a time-travelling elder gentleman and his younger granddaughter companion, it was felt a modern 1960s audience could be taken on journeys through time to educate and enlighten. Whilst the format would be flexible, there would be one cardinal rule. No bug-eyed monsters. This lasted approximately four weeks, the initial run of the opening serial, when the series ran a seven-part story entitled The Daleks. Initially produced only because the series had no other scripts, The Daleks became iconic and one of the most recognised aspects of the show. The producers report that they knew they had a hit when they witnessed children in playgrounds during the course of the serial running around screaming EXTERMINATE! at all their friends. See, so it wasn't on while you were in primary school, was it? So you yes. were well, Fred Did you
0: play Exterminate? I had to play. Exterminate! Because we did. Yeah. I was a kid. Well, I, I was in my um, second to last year of primary school when it started again. When it came back. Yeah.
1: The series was a huge success with both children and adults. And during its opening run, the Doctor, played initially by actor William Hartnell, would initiate the template for the series going forth. There would be journeys backwards in time to provide some historical context, interspersed with more science-fictional elements purely designed to entertain. The writers also added the wrinkle that the show's cast would not be set in stone, and companions to the Doctor would come and go. However, when Hartnell's increasing illness, irascibility and inability to remember lines slowly started to become more noticeable, the producers made a decision that would change the course of the show forever, as well as making television history. Due to the success of the series, it was decided that cancellation was not an option, nor was it thought simply swapping out the actor and making no mention of it would fly. Instead, the producers postulated that the Doctor's alien physiognomy would enable him to physically change when near death. Thus, it was decided. Following a fourth year of adventures and 134 episodes, the Doctor would collapse and his body would change, allowing a new actor, Patrick Troughton, probably best known now for his role in the original Omen, to take over. Troughton arguably had it more difficult than Hartnell, selling the idea that this was the same man in a different body, but his successful interpretation, still a favourite of many, including subsequent actors to play the role, assured the programme's continued success and longevity when, after three years and a further 119 episodes Trot and decided to move on, the ending was yet again the beginning, and John Pertwee stepped into the role. And so, through numerous different incarnations, the Doctor has continued to wander through space and time, all the while following the adventures of the little apes that he has a special fondness for, a.k.a. the human race. His Type 40 space capsule has a faulty chameleon circuit, and is trapped in the form of an obsolete 1950s UK police box. He'd rather talk his way out of a problem, and as a deep mistrust of pompous authority figures. He is contradictory and mercurial, intelligent and childlike, with a fondness for pretty young women, and it's possible he doesn't know when to shut up, but he also has hearts of gold and an innate sense of right and wrong. He's over 900 years old from the planet Gallifrey and the constellation of Castorbus. He can't break the time stream, but he can bend it occasionally. He is ever striving to put an end to injustice and evil wherever he finds it, whether that be Hackney in London or on Metabilis 3, and his sense of adventure is never-ending. He is the Doctor. He may just save us all. Needless to say, like Star Wars, Star Trek, and anything else with a fan base of more than ten, the Doctor has appeared in comics almost from the beginning. And yet, despite being a fan of the show and a huge comics fan, I very rarely read Doctor Who comics and have never dipped my toes into the expanded universe material. Oh sure, at school I read a metric ton of the Target novels that adapted episodes, but that's largely because every single school in the land in the 1980s had about a thousand of them in the library, and they had such great pulpy covers by Chris Achilios. But the comics? Nada. Luckily, I know a man who has...
2: I don't know if you're aware, but for a large number of people in the United Kingdom, November 23rd, 1963 isn't just the date of one of the most notorious modern-day political assassinations. It's the date of the first broadcast of a children's television show that was initially only supposed to run for 13 weeks, and it featured a grumpy old coot, played by an actor best known for shouting at the nation as various sergeant major characters in comedy films and television series. 13 weeks. I think the plan went a little wrong. Doctor Who was a hit, but not quite an overnight one. It took the arrival of the Daleks, still one of the most iconic and unique alien races ever seen on screen, for the show to break out at the Saturday tea time schedules and into the nation's collective consciousness, but once it was there, it never really left. With the arrival of the Daleks came Dalek Mania, and a desire to merchandise almost every aspect of Daleks, and by extension, Doctor Who itself. And so, almost a year to the day after the show made its debut, the first Doctor Who comics appeared in the pages of TV Comic in issue 674. Featuring a more magical Doctor than seen on the screen, and for rights issues, missing his TV companions and notable nemesis, the Daleks, Doctor Who, as he was known, roamed the galaxy with his grandchildren, John and Gillian. The strips kept pace with the changes in lead actor in the series, and when the Doctor was exiled to Earth by the Time Lords in 1969, the comic Doctor followed Pace leading to a series of earthbound adventures for the second Doctor whilst the strip waited for the new adventures of the third Doctor to begin in the 1970s the comic strip moved to TV action then back to TV comic when the former title folded all the while sharing space with features and comic strips based on the popular TV series of the day at the same time the series of Doctor Who annuals from world distributors also featured Doctor Who comic strips but these were well let's put it like this if the Doctor looked like the Doctor you were reading one of the better ones Both the annual strips and the TV action strips were very light-hearted affairs, really written for children, and are not particularly well-remembered, except by those who are real devotees of them. But in 1978, the writing looked to be on the wall, when original stories featuring Tom Baker were replaced with a series of reprints of earlier stories, redrawn to feature the fourth Doctor. It would be up to Stan Lee and legendary British comics figure Des Skin to lay the groundwork for a brand new era of Doctor Who comics. In 1979, the first issue of a new weekly comic from marvel uk launched doctor who weekly the majority of the magazine was comprised of comic strips with an adaptation of the war of the worlds and the dalek feature strip both introduced by the fourth doctor filling out the issue but the very first issue opened with one of the most famous doctor who comics ever written by two of 2000 ad's most notable writers and illustrated by one of the most famous modern comics artists
1: thank you very much mr stephen lacey He will be returning
0: later in the show. Is he hiding in his long box? Yes, and he's he's just going to pop up when we (laughs) want him to. Like like the Cookie Monster. Not um, the Cookie Monster, um, Oscar. Oscar the Grouch, his
1: dustbin. Uh, I don't remember ever not being a Doctor Who. I grew up with the Doctor. Tom Baker was my Doctor. Well, so did I. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. My earliest memories. The three that... Were in my head, but through the magic of DVD, I now know we're years apart. Yeah. But the ones I always remember, I remember the big plant triffid thing eating a house, <laughs> which was from uh, The Seeds of Doom. And I remember Scaroth of the Jagroth ripping his face off, and it okay. big, one big eye in the middle of his head. I remember that, and I remember... I uh, See, I remember Genesis of the Daleks, but I can't remember Genesis of the Daleks from when it was first on. Yeah. Because I was only two when Tom Baker took over right. but I remember it being an edited movie I remember it being a feature length episode Genesis of the Daleks mm. so I can only assume at some point it got repeated as a, a cut together film yeah. on BBC or BBC 2 or something I don't remember seeing it as six episodes but I remember Davros because Davros is cool mm. I always liked Davros when did you start watching Doctor Who? Like?
0: I, I have no memory. I have no memory of any bits from episodes. I just know that I've always watched it. Since it came back. you. <laughs> and then it came back <laughs> and I watched it at Nan and Grandad's on my own in, on the TV in the bedroom. Were you
1: not here for Rose?
0: Nope. Were you not? Nope. Right. The, I thought we bit. all watched it together. No, I watched it at Nan and Grandad's. Right. On my own. I didn't remember you being here. the bit were the messed up and you um, a Graham Norton? Yeah, the best the we played with Graham Norton, that terrified me more than <laughs> the bloody autumns. Well, Graham
1: Norton is scurry. Gra- Graham
0: Norton shouted at me, I can't see him, but I know he's there. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: Graham Norton's quite terrifying <laughs> at the best of times. So is, is Chris Eccleston your doctor? Yes. Is he, your he, he is the best one. There Do you is,
0: think? There's no case for an argument, though. Is there not? No, no. So all the <laughs> earlier
1: ones and later ones, Chris Eccleston is the doctor? Yes. That's fair enough. I, don't know, I think Chris Eccleston was an excellent actor he stayed on just long enough what one year yeah.
0: he did one year he brought
1: the show back and then he buggered off yeah yeah
0: because, let's face it, David, David Tennant got boring after that. They, I, mean, I don't think David Tennant
1: got boring, but by the time he left at the end of his last episode, I was ready that he was going. It, it, because got, it seemed like the he was like... It was just Lord of the Rings, wasn't it?
0: But you just got so bored of watching the camera close up to his face as he looked slightly off it, <laughs> scared and confused as the rain poured down behind him.
1: <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, see, my favourite memory of Doctor Who from it coming back is your brother. Who, who cried when? Yeah, Eccleston was because Adam watched the show every week with us. He watched it throughout the Christopher Eccleston run, and he did. It's fair to say he was he loved Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper, didn't he? He was very fond of them. Mm-hmm. And then when that series ended with Eccleston regenerating, he was not impressed. He he stopped watching after a while because well, yeah, but he's he's been watching the Matt Smith ones with me recently because yeah. I've been watching them all again but he wasn't impressed by that because he didn't know anything about it. He yeah. didn't know anything about regeneration. He didn't know anything. And then at the end of his, his, this run, Chris Eccleston becomes somebody else. Yeah. And your brother was, what? Mm. What? What? And he, he wouldn't like it. And we sat down to watch the Christmas special. Um, and and we wouldn't get into and, it. And no, he was sat there and his arms were folded <laughs> and he was very, well, come on, then, impress me. And halfway through, he disappeared. Mm. And we thought, oh, <laughs> right, well... Tennant's not impressing him then, and he came back with his sonic screwdriver. And it was one of them things he, where you go, he did, ah, he's grown to like David Tennant. He didn't Tenet. have
0: a sonic screwdriver then.
1: He did. That had it him that day. Did you? Yeah, it was. Right. that was his Christmas present that day, his right. sonic screwdriver. And he came back and he did watch all the David Tennant ones. I mean, so, he's kind of floated away a bit. Yeah. Since he became interested in his computer. Mm. But he has been watching the Matt Smith ones with me. The Matt Smith ones
0: are good. The the newer ones, the later ones, are really good.
1: Well, I've said before, I think he's better than the show at the minute. Mm. I, I, I don't think the show's bad. Um, and I've been doing that thing that I did when Tennant left. I watched them all just before he left. Yeah. And I've been doing the same with Matt Smith. My plan is to watch them all before we get to Christmas Day. Mm. And I can have watched all the Matt Smith ones again. And they're better than I remember them. Mm. But... Overall, I don't think Matt Smith has had as many good scripts as David Tennant had. The last two
0: seasons or so have been the best, hmm. but yeah. But so well, the eleventh hour was brilliant. Which one? His that? first episode. Right. Is fantastic. My favourite so far is Asylum of the Daleks. Yeah, I wonder why. Oh, well, not because nothing to do with <laughs> Clara. No, 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 not really. Um, Honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the bit where. Amy went down into the little asylum thing and she saw all the people dancing and it was really wacky and out there and I was like bloody hell when did they get David Lynch on Doctor Who? <laughs> well a couple of them I mean the, I just watched the one with the Doctor's wife which was the TARDIS
1: yeah, and Lynch that one's one. D- Doctor Who does Tim Burton isn't it? Yeah. With Sir Anne Jones doing her best Eleanor Bonham Carter impression. Mm. So so the show does change and vacillate. Which was the
0: other Neil Gaiman one?
1: It was a Cybermen one wasn't it? Profile yeah. in Silver oh, was it called? the one on the abandoned yeah. um, theme park and banner. isn't he doing another one not for next year but for the year after Yeah, he is doing one for the next one mm. the next row for Peter Capaldi yeah anyway so thank you for Stephen he will be back speaking of comics yeah, yeah. <laughs> remember we're a comics <laughs> podcast but we are celebrating 50 years of the Doctor Doctor Who Weekly's first comic storyline, running through the first eight issues and totalling 34 pages, first materialised in UK newsagents and subsequently into the waiting hands of happy school children on October 17th, 1979. It was called The Iron Legion and is one of the most reprinted of the Doctor's comic book stories. At that time in the show, the Doctor was up to his fourth incarnation, or regeneration, as the show would come to call it, as the mythology grew. And was embodied by actor and national treasure Tom Baker, who, if he isn't a sir, should be. Tom Baker has the added distinction of not only being the longest-running Doctor, clocking up 172 episodes over his seven-season run, but also the one best known in America to that point. Baker's shadow over the Doctor is huge. His appearance, long multicoloured scarf, fedora, long brown curly hair and wide mad blue eyes, came to define the Doctor, even years after he had left the series. And even today, the confectionery snack jelly babies are still largely associated with Doctor Who because of Baker's predilection for carrying a bag around with him. Baker's adventures were picked up by US station PBS in the 70s and he was the version introduced to that country even though the Doctor was successful in many other countries around the world from the beginning. It was even Baker's version of the character that was given the ultimate US pop culture stamp of approval an appearance on The Simpsons some 18 years after he had last played the part on UK television. Wasn't he also pretty back-or now? Oh, Tom Becker's mad as a bag of spanners, yeah. And I don't think he that's even allegedly. Yeah. I think he's genuinely <laughs> mad as a hatter. did he
0: say he used to throw scripts around? So yes, this is dreadful!
1: <laughs> I love Tom Becker. Tom Becker's just a, a wonderfully bat guano crazy man. Initially, Doctor Who Weekly was an imprint of Marvel UK, and with the moderate success of the show in the US, it took Marvel no time at all to realise they could reprint these stories in the US market for next to nothing. Yet it would be all new content to US readers. These adventures were first serialised in the US in Marvel Premiere, an anthology boot that had run the publishing gmut from notable characters like Doctor Strange, Hercules and Iron Fist, to obscure rarities like Monarch Starstalker, the 3D Man and Paladin. There was even an issue devoted to Alice Cooper. Issue 57 was the first American comic book appearance. The cover reliably informs us of Doctor Who, and what a fantastic cover it is. Adapted from a rather famous publicity still of the Doctor in Paris, Walt Simonson nevertheless manages to create an eye-catching cover of the Doctor, scarf flowing wildly in front of the TARDIS, the Doctor's time-travelling machine. Oddly, the TARDIS has a red light on top of it, like the one Hutch used to stick on the top of Starsky's Ford Torino, rather than the traditional blue one. It was covered December 1980, just as Baker's final season was airing in the UK. I found this in a 50p bin a while ago, but as yet, I've been unable to find any others. Can you imagine if,
0: if he was, like, Starsky and Hutch? But it, what, if he slid across the roof of the TARDIS? Yeah. It, in an effort to it, get it, through door. It was two-doctors crossover. <laughs> Doctor and Doctor. <laughs> Driving the red-blue <laughs> TARDIS around the town.
1: <laughs> It doesn't really work, does it? I I guess. 70s icons, though. Tom Becker, Paul Michael Glazer. Iron Legion was written by Pat Mills and John Wagner, with art by Dave Gibbons. Andy Yanchus, coloured. Landing on Earth after an adventure on Zaga 6, the Doctor visits a small corner shop to restock on jelly babies. Alas, the Doctor's hunger must go unsated when a robotic centurion kills the shopkeeper and the Doctor realises he is witness to dimensional invaders from a time where Rome never fell, but instead evolved into a robotic race of world conquerors. The Doctor is swept up through the Dimension Duct to their own dimension, but when the Doctor refuses to reel the secrets of the TARDIS to General Ironicus, he is tossed into the arena to fight for his life. The Doctor, however, realises that the beast he is to fight, despite being horrific in appearance, has a highly developed sense of humour and manages to win the beast over, to the dissatisfaction of the crowd and the ire of Ironicus. Fed up of being mocked by the Doctor, Ironicus makes him a slave in the Ur-Galley, but whilst aboard the vessel which carries the royal family, the Doctor discovers the horrific secret of the Galactic Roman Empire after witnessing Caesar and his mother. The Doctor and his newest companion, a half bionic former gladiator named Morris, make their way through the ship where they witness Ionicus worshipping their gods. In actuality, the Malivilius. The most terrible of all races, the gods of the Galactic Roman Empire. And with a name like Malivilius. A cross between evil and malevolent. Yeah. Are you shocked that they were evil?
0: Are you really a little bit shocked? I, I, it, was a, it was a plot twist of a secret. Was it really? It was, it was.
1: Okay, fair enough. The very brief return of... Continuity and nitpicks! <laughs> I do love it when we do this. For the more continuity-minded of listeners familiar with the Doctor Who concept, the Doctor not having a companion in this tale may seem strange, and indeed it is. Throughout his run as the Doctor, Tom Baker travelled with Sarah Jane Smith and Harry Sullivan, Leela, Romana, played by two different actresses, K-9, and finally, Nyssa Tegan and Adric, although they were primarily the fifth incarnation of the Doctor's companions. Baker, however, was always lobbying for the Doctor to travel alone, feeling the companion was oft-times a hindrance, and he got his wish in one story. Following Surajane's departure in the Hand of Fear serial, the Doctor travelled to his own planet alone for the deadly assassin, so named because an assassin that isn't deadly is presumably not also very good. (laughs) After this, the face of evil introduced Leela, It's possible that this story takes place in between those two serials. Alternatively, after leaving Leela in the Armageddon Factor, the Doctor is without a companion until Romana shows up in the reboss operation. As this was a season break, it's possible the Doctor had a few adventures here as well. Although he would have had K-9 with him if that were the case. This comic has an excellent splash page of the Galactic Roman Centurions brutally attacking the citizens of the UK. Because this is Doctor Who and everybody attacks the UK. Normally London off Cardiff. There is a very 2000 AD vibe off this splash and it did look a lot better in black and white, but I've no desire to see Andy Yancho's
0: out of work. Do you not look at that and think yeah. 2000 AD? I thought I, I thought kind of Warhammer, but it's, it's pretty much the same thing really. Yeah, pretty much. Seems yeah. to go. Yeah, I thought it had a very 2000 AD feel. It didn't look like Doctor Who. No. But that being said, one of my problems with this issue was it felt like something not Doctor Who was trying to be Doctor Who. Right, it felt
1: like a story that had just dropped the Doctor in the middle of it that yeah. wasn't necessarily a Doctor Who story. Yeah. And that's actually a fair point. It's like the Doctors wandered into 2000 AD. Yeah. Was what I felt it was. And I don't know that that's two great tastes that go great <laughs> together, to be honest with you. but all right, I thought the opening scene was good the Doctor's more whimsical personality shines through as he drops by simply for some jelly babies and offers to pay with a a zaggin' pound note. However, the scene turns gothic pretty quickly as the Centurion bursts in and kills the old shopkeeper before the Doctor. And the art does a good job of portraying the Doctor's anger as he turns serious and demands the Centurion turn over his weapon. But I could actually see Tom Baker delivering that line, going from whimsical to Mm. very annoyed in the space of a line, which is something the Doctor... The actor playing the Doctor needs to be able to do, isn't it? Yeah. He can turn on that
0: dime. One minute he's been funny, and then the next minute he's been... What are you doing? Well, you know Tom Baker's doing that because he just stops acting when he's annoyed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Probably very true. <laughs> Following up the lovely characterization, the centurion is confused that his optical receptors pick up only one human, but his sensors pick up two. A nice nod to the Doctor having two hearts, and he uses the confusion to remove the robot's head. But I love that he did it politely. Yes, yes, we don't want any more of that nonsense. Shall we get your head off, shall we, before you blow a fuse? <laughs> I know you just see Tom going, ah and smiling as he does it. Oh, very good. Well, for you we, long as we agree on that. Uh, it has to be said, Ionicus's poetry is vogue on levels of bad. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? Shall we do a dramatic reading? <laughs> oh, gods, how I love war. <laughs> Let there never be an end to my conquests. Let my Iron Legion march forever, for only through destruction am I alive, and without death I am a dead thing. O gods, let the eternal war that has lasted through the millennia continue until the end of time. Amen
0: and it's shit it doesn't even rhyme <laughs> it's cack
1: that <isn't> it? <laughs> that is that is Vogon poetry at it's finest I'm surprised the Vogan's didn't show up and blow him up <laughs> it needs Dave Gorman's poetry music <laughs> in the back yeah, it needs Dave Gorman's <laughs> classical music <laughs> thing in the back doesn't it tone poem <laughs> um it Plot-wise, it's quite similar to the Star Trek episode Bread and Circuses. The new Roman Empire uses television for the gladiatorial combat and ratings at all. So I got that vibe off it as well, although this... Well, no, it won't predate it, will it? Star Trek was 1968, Mm. so this was a good ten years later. Shut up, Andrew. (laughs) Um, I did like, when we throw the Doctor into the gladiatorial arena, I did love how he survived. He basically tells the ectobies to joke instead of fighting him. <laughs> I actually found that really, really hysterical. Oh well.
0: Ah, oh, well, he has a very highly developed sense of humour. You see, I just told him a joke. <laughs> I, I like its face. If you look on that panel there, it's got little tiny eyes.
1: Yeah, it's got little tiny eyes inside that big red splodge thing. Yeah.
0: Yes.
1: Yeah, that, 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 that was very doctorish. Like the barges of old, the airships are propelled by slaves turning the propellers. This seems a bit stupid... Okay. ...to me. Uh, at least on sea, if the slaves revolted and refused to pedal or Yeah. ...or... What's it called when you're oaring? Rowing! <laughs> thank you very much. Glad I've got you. Stop rowing. At least the boat wouldn't sink. Yeah. It would just float. Whereas if you're in an airship and all the state slaves suddenly go, screw this, and stop pedaling, doesn't the airship just plummet to the floor? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there may be engines there somewhere, but that kind of defeats the point of having a galley full of slaves who are making the ship fly, doesn't it? Mm. So whilst I thought it was a
0: pretty cool visual... Maybe there's some kind of deterrence on board. Uh, possibly. I did think it was a, a bit silly, that. I, I just like how uh, the, that Morris guy is just a crazy Hank Henshaw. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, he is. Crazy cyborg, see you for that.
0: I did like that uh, they sneaked in a what's-up dock gag. Yeah. I thought that was quite... I, I find it funny how the, the the woman, who's actually an alien, looks yeah. a lot like what if Venom took over Ultron. The Doctor sees what she really looks like. Oh, yeah. Yes. It looks... No, to me, it looks
1: more like what if Venom took over the Green Goblin. Yeah. Rather than Ultron. But I see what you're saying. It, she does look um like a cross between certain Spider-Man
0: type villains. But how did the Doctor see what she really looks like? Because he's the Doctor. And he's amazing just because he's from Krypton yeah he's from Gallifrey (laughs) that'll work
1: I did say the comedy robot was a bit of a misstep (laughs) there's a comedy robot who wanders on with a cane moaning about all the pain in the diodes down his left side and you're just like no this worked in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because Marvin was funny yeah whereas this it it doesn't it doesn't
0: really play I kind of liked it did you like him (laughs) (laughs) fair enough no I like problem. how the Doctor just lit his head up and you just carry on going a little, little candle.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, fair enough. From the whole, I quite enjoyed this. Mills and Wagner managed to capture the Doctor's speech patterns and mannerisms very well and it rattles along at a fair pace including a few nice visual touches and scenes that would have broke the budget of the TV show. Gibbon's art's good, with a decent but not slavish likeness of Baker, and given he's the only character from the show in this story, the rest of the art works very well. A Roman Empire that never fell's a pretty old story trope, but there's nothing wrong with an oldie but goodie, and this feels right. It felt a little bit like a Doctor Who story, albeit one filtered through the lens of 2000 AD. The Doctor is characterised well throughout the issue, though. I presume one day I'll find out how this ends, if part two ever rocks up in a 50p bin somewhere. Mm. What did you think of it, Michael?
0: I, uh, I just I just read it as something that wanted to be Doctor Who, but wasn't. A glowing endorsement. Uh, yeah, it's five out of ten. Five out of
1: five. Five out of ten. All right, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I like the art.
0: David Gibbon's art's very good. Hmm. But yeah, it was David Gibbon's art that didn't suit Doctor Who, I think. Right. The reason why it looks like a 2000 AD comic was it's a 2000 AD artist. Right. Okay, fair
1: enough. Alright, I'll go with that, because it does feel like the Doctor has wandered into a 2000 AD story in
0: error. Yeah. Would you like a jelly baby? Eat the fist of justice! <laughs> <laughs> My! I love your policemen, <laughs> they're so violent! <laughs> He's not acting anymore. on, oh, give him a good piece of <laughs> um. He's kicked that bloody pig, that boy. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Full uh, Thomas Baker references. Though. Yes, yes, very good. Was that a Little Britain reference? No, it was a reference to the boy you
1: kick pick Oh, right. I, I thought, are we not doing Blackadder as well while we're at it? Because <laughs> he's magnificent in Blackadder. Adder. <laughs> Uh, this issue has some excellent back matter and some pretty cool adverts. There's a poster by Dave Cockrum and Frank Gaia-Coya of the then-current actors to play the Doctor, but rather nicely includes Peter Cushing, who portrayed the character in two out-of-continuity movies in the 60s. This is followed by a two-page text piece by Murray Joe Duffy that pretty much brings readers unfamiliar with the show up to date in an entertaining and jaunty manner. The back couple of pages are more pin-ups, again by Cockrum, but with a variety of inkers of K-9, the Doctor's robot dog sidekick, Introduced in the wake of the success of Star Wars, the Daleks and their creator Davros, and finally a mini-montage of the Doctor's most fearsome foes, including the Master, a Sontaran, a Cyberman and a Silurian. I don't recall Tom Baker ever meeting a Silurian, so that seems a bit strange. I did like that there was a Cybermat! There's a little Cybermat! Excellent, I I like
0: that. I like the creepy Master. Well, that's Roger
1: Delgado. The Emperor, essentially. Is it? Oh, right, the one from The Deadly Assassin. Yeah. well, he's at the end of his regeneration cycle, so he's all gnarled and and creepy, right? Yeah, Yeah. okay, fair enough. Ads are plentiful and largely centre around Saturday morning TV. NBC had the Dynamo Godzilla Hour. They're two things that you wouldn't expect to go together. Space Ghost, the Flintstones comedy show and the Jetsons and so forth. We got Dynamo and Godzilla, I don't remember if we got the rest of them.
0: And Godzuki.
1: And Godzuki. ABC had the truly awful Happy Days spin-off cartoon Fonzie <laughs> and the Happy Days Gang, in which Fonz, Richie Cunningham and Potsy from the popular 50s set laughathon that was Happy Days team up with a time-travelling girl named Cupcake and a talking dog that would put its thumbs up and say, Hey... <laughs> A dog with thumbs was the least of that show's problems. <laughs> Plastic Man got a cartoon show, which we did get over here. It's a bouncing baby boy! After he gives birth to the baby. He gives birth to the yeah. birth to Well I don't, I don't know how they did that on a cartoon. I don't remember, to be honest with you. Um, there was also a cartoon called Thundar the Barbarian. Hopefully his barbarian ways were not diluted too much by the time slot, and young American children were treated to a feast of raping and pillaging. <laughs> That would be cool.
0: It, it was. Something tells me he's a little bit like Conan. A little bit like Conan,
1: I, I, only very, very sanitised, I, yeah. I would imagine. <laughs> um, I would also imagine this was the perfect counterpart, the story of Thundar the Barbarian, to Richie Rich. I'd imagine that's a double bill that plays very well together. <laughs> Doctor Doom orders you to subscribe to Marvel Comics. And let's be honest, who would argue with it? And Spider-Man and the Hulk had handheld games. And it's up to Iron Man to thwart a robbery using only hostess fruit pies.
0: It's that just like an episode of MacGyver.
1: <laughs> in which he uses hostess fruit pies to get out of whatever problem he's in this week.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I don't mind that. MacGyver-endorsed desserts. (laughs) (laughs) They will get you out of all kinds of problems. Anyway,
1: we're going to take a little minute while Stephen pops back on. Hi, Stephen, come and have a seat. And tells you all about the second chapter in the Doctor Who comics trilogy.
2: The Doctor Who magazine of today is almost a completely different entity to the one that launched in 1979. Re-energised by the relaunch of the TV series in 2005, the magazine is one part detailed archive, one part breaking news, and indeed it's a testament to the quality of the magazine that the BBC regularly holds its Doctor Who-related news until Doctor Who magazine has gone to print, and one part loving fanzine, although a very professional one. But the one constant from issue one through to the latest issue on the stands is the comic strip. Throughout the 1980s, the lack of likeness rights for any TV characters that weren't the Doctor became a blessing in disguise, forcing the writers to produce stories that went far beyond the abilities of the TV series. Whether it was the Fifth Doctor's adventures in Stockbridge or the Sixth Doctor's voyage into the imagination, the strip often hit an unexpected level of quality. You could see pre-2000 AD Alan Moore writing an early history of the Time Lords in 1981, or pre-DC Grant Morrison tying together the planets Marinus Mondus and the companion Jamie McCrimmon in 1986. Probably the most notable companion from this era was Frobisher, a shape-changing wifidil, who chose to adopt the form of a five-foot-tall penguin. Definitely a conceit you could only... Do in comics. In the late 1980s, an experiment in crossing over with the rest of the Marvel UK line saw the Doctor become responsible for shrinking the bounty hunter Death's Head down to a normal human size. In 1989, Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred walked off our screens looking for danger, injustice, and cups of tea that are going cold. But Doctor Who magazine continued chronicling the adventures of the Seventh Doctor, now joined by his on screen companion. As the 1990s dawned and Virgin Publishing started producing a new adventures line of novels, Doctor Doctor Who magazine did all it could to tie into the continuity of the books, introducing characters from the line into the comic strips. Initially this worked, but readers became unsatisfied with the close ties between the two ranges. Following a couple of years of stories featuring past Doctors, Doctor Who magazine closed out the seventh Doctor's era by splitting from virgin continuity and killing Ace. Behind the scenes, the mid-90s Marvel near bankruptcy saw the closure of Marvel UK, and Doctor Who magazine was bought up by Italian publisher Panini, who owned the magazine today. 1996 saw the temporary return of the Doctor to the television with the Paul McGann television movie. In the comics the Doctor regenerated, but when the movie failed to turn into an ongoing series the comic strip took the opportunity to tell the kind of stories that it hadn't been able to do when it was beholden to the ongoing television series or a range of novels. The Eighth Doctor comic strips are for me an absolute high point of the series, making the most of nine years of independence to tell broad sweeping stories and introduce ongoing story arcs. Izzy Sinclair was one of the best companions ever for the Doctor. Her moment of coming out towards the end of her tenure in the Tires was a particularly wonderful and unhyped moment that fit the character to a T. By the time 2005 and the return of the series rolled around, showrunner Russell T. Davis had become a huge fan. He even offered Doctor Who magazine the chance to show the McGann-Eccleston regeneration, a scene which made it to the pencil stage before it was abandoned. For more on this era, why not check out Shag Mattis and myself spending a couple of hours discussing the McGann wilderness years on Who True Freaks. The comic strip remained strong throughout the rest of the 2000s, although being tied once again to the TV series meant that the strip returned to more one-off stories as opposed to a continuing narrative. This also meant that some companions got particularly short shrift, as a normal Doctor Who season would only run across three issues of the monthly magazine. But just because a character barely appeared in the strip doesn't mean that they couldn't make a lasting impression.
1: Our next choice was suggested by Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Who you just heard. He was here. He was in the room. It was nice seeing him, wasn't it? He's gone now, though. Yeah, he'll be back in a minute. He's just gone for a drink. Uh, And comes from Doctor Who magazine, one of the finest magazines of its type currently being published. Each issue is a densely packed read with articles and interviews across the full range of Doctor Who history. After the show was cancelled in 1989, although the cowardly controller of the BBC at that time didn't actually have the guts to say it was cancelled, Doctor Who magazine kept the flame burning through to that fateful day in 2004 when it proudly announced to the world the show was coming back. Whilst it has been criticised for perhaps not being overly analytical of whatever current season is erring, this is offset by unprecedented access to the cast and crew of the show and, since the return in 2005, a regular column by the show's current executive producer. Besides, one only has to remember those god-awful puff-piece Star Trek The Next Generation magazine Starlog used to publish to see how ...how good of a magazine Doctor Who Monthly is... By this point the show had been resurrected, arguably more popular than ever, and David Tennant was reaching the end of his tenure as the Time Lord. Tennant, the tenth actor to play the part, not counting the aforementioned Peter Cushing, was also one of the most popular. And if any man is responsible for shaking the image of Doctor Who always being Tom Baker, it's Tennant. Decked out in a dark blue or light brown suit, long brown hero coat and converse trainers, Tennant's slightly shouty doctor was immensely popular with fans and general audiences alike. Largely because he was a fan of the show and had been since childhood, and his final episodes were hyped to the rafters when, after 47 episodes in just under five years in the role, Tennant announced he was leaving. The comic story in this issue, number 399, from the 17th of September 2008, is called The Time of My Life and was written by Jonathan Morris with art by Rob Davis. Whilst fiddling around with the TARDIS console, the Doctor comes across a holographic recording of his recent companion, Donna Noble, who he had to leave on Earth with no memory of her encounters with him. Many adventures flash through the mind of the Doctor, the courtship of the Ziglots, talking dogs taking over London, Swamp that is a single living organism, vampire goth cannibals, Donna being infected by a psychic parasite, and even meeting the Beatles in Liverpool. The holographic Donna says she had the time of her life, and as the hologram disappears, she finishes off with good... Finishes the Doctor. I thought this one was quite sad. Mm. But funny. Very funny. The son of... Continuity and (laughs) Netflix. After what happened to Donna, the Doctor travelled on his own for a while, so this could easily fit in around that time. Plus, the continuity in the Donna season means that these adventures could easily be slotted in and around... The first page of the story has a freezing cold Donna say, I thought you said Morocco which I'm pretty sure is a gag writer Stephen Moffat has recycled for companion Amy Pond in one of the more recent series. Where they come out and she said I
0: thought you said you were taking us to Barcelona. Yeah, that's that's just a joke they've always had though, isn't it? Yeah, where were we? Ah yes, Barcelona. I mean, the the, the TARDIS has always gone in the opposite direction it's told to. It's
1: always took him where he needs to go, (laughs) even if it's never took him where he wants to go. She said that to him. Okay. You're not very reliable. You never go where I want you to. No, but I always go where you need to be. Ah. it's very good. There's also a good gag at the expense of the old show's predilection for filming in quarries. Did you notice that? Mm. Where she says, why does everyone go look like a quarry? So the new show doesn't tend to film in quarries much anymore, does it's it? Just Cardiff. Yeah. Although they've got to go to Utah. So, I think Matt Smith. Did they
0: actually go? Yeah,
1: Matt Smith actually got to go on location more than anyone else. David Tennant got to go to Rome, didn't he? Did they? Yeah, for the fires of Pompeii. They did actually do some filming in Rome, didn't they? I'm not. A- I don't know. I know they've done some location filming since they came back. Page two. One of the things I did really dig about this little short story strip is how funny it was. Jonathan Morris manages to capture Tate's cadence and speech patterns exceptionally well. And when they are in the London ran by dogs her line about their neighbours keeping it quiet that they had a pool was one that I thought was really funny. i actually heard Catherine Tate deliver. Mm. All this funny, wacky stuff's going on. And she's like, they've got a swimming pool. They kept that quiet. And I, t- I totally heard Donna deliver
0: that. This, this, that page was literally Howl's Moving Castle, though. Was it? Because the dogs howl and the castle. Is it? Is that a homage? I'm no, I'm just saying the dogs are howling. Right. The dogs howl and the castle. Oh,
1: right, I see. I thought you were saying it was a deliberate no, no, no. homage to Howl's Moving Castle, which I've never
0: seen. Oh, alright, fuck. Right. I did like the dogs, though. I like the,
1: sp- I like that the dogs were dressed as Sherlock Holmes <laughs> yeah. with Deer Stalker hats on. Sherlock Bones. Oh! <laughs> I'll be here all week, folks. <laughs> Don't forget to try the veal and tip your waitress. <laughs> uh, the humour is incredibly apparent on the next page, where the doctor takes Donna to see the Beatles at the Cavern in Liverpool. We've been in the Cavern. I've okay. been seeing your brother playing, uh, your brother, your cousin playing
0: the Cavern. I haven't. Well, me and your mum. I, I liked the the page before it. Which one? With the creepy robot lady.
1: Oh yeah, the creepy lo- robot lady who looks. She reminds me of somebody from New Mutants. Yeah. There's a character in New Mutants, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Bill Sinkovich used to draw, but I can't well, remember. I'll take like yeah. something
0: that's out of the Invisibles. It
1: does look a little bit Invisibles. I did like that she, she goes to get a CD signed yeah. by John Lennon 40 years before CDs will exist. I, li- I like how none of them are None of them, but they just signed it for her. And I do love that she told Paul McCartney to not marry Heather. Presumably he didn't listen. Yeah. But it was good of her to warn him, I thought. Um. Again. There's humour in the scene, the Cossack uprising. Donna wonders if all these things keep happening because she's ginger. The persecution of the ginger people continues. And they're going to make us a kebab, yells Donna. Well, your first name is Donna, replies the Doctor. Come on, that was funny. All right, I thought it was funny. (laughs) Another favourite from me, I don't know if you'd have got this though, the school sequence. The doctor and Donna are depicted as children in school, and the teacher is the monster, the subtext rapidly becoming text. <laughs> but there's a lovely, subtle little Grange Hill gag on this page with a sausage with a fork suddenly being thrown at Donna's head. You okay. won't get that, will you? Because <laughs> Grange Hill was off the air before you were born. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. The opening credits to *Green Jill, for some inexplicable reason right. would feature a fork with a sausage on it hurling towards some <laughs> child's head, and you're like, "What? Why is that there?" But it was—it was there every single episode. And I really did like the art on the, the rather bittersweet last page, which is all black except the light of the TARDIS console which casts an illumination over the Doctor and, of course, Donna's holographic image. The shading on that page was phenomenal. Mm. I thought that was an exceptionally good page. An absolutely lovely little story with magnificent cartoony artwork that nevertheless managed to capture the likenesses of the actors, in this case David Tennant and Tatherine Tate, each page is a single little mini adventure in its own right, all contributing to the whole before the rather tragic and hugely sad ending. If I have a complaint, it's that this does rather depend on the reader knowing what happened to Donna in the series. But given that this is published in Doctor Who magazine for a specific fan base, that complaint seems a little churlish, yeah. doesn't it? They know their audience. Mm. I think it's fair to say. Given that Donna was my favourite of the Doctor's companions in this era, this was a nice little epilogue to her time in the TARDIS. What did you think of this one, Michael?
0: It was, it was, it was fun.
1: Did you like that one? Mm. Yeah, I, I thought that was great. That was an excellent choice. I don't. I like comics that genuinely make me laugh, and that one did genuinely make me laugh out loud while I was reading it. Yeah. That's specifically the line, "Don't marry Heather." Oh, I do wonder if he wishes he took that advice. <laughs> point in the TV show's history, it had become incredibly popular in the UK and around the rest of the world, but there was still the tough nut to crack that was America. Largely, if Doctor Who was known at all in the United States, it was because of a small but loyal fan base, and primarily the Tom Baker version. The initial relaunch season starring Christopher Eccleston as the ninth incarnation of the Doctor back in 2005 was, not by coincidence I'm sure, 45 minutes in length, the average run of a US TV show without commercials, and was shocked to around the networks, but a deal with a major network was not forthcoming. The BBC relented and sold the Eccleston and Tennant serials to the sci-fi channel, but what? They felt there was something missing. Tennant's final episodes, a series of special shows rather than a series proper, were shown on BBC America, but the show started to build up a following, but it would take the next incumbent to the role to really sell the series in the US. Following Tennant's departure, the next actor to step into the TARDIS was Matt Smith, at 26, the youngest actor to ever play the role. Smith's gangly appearance and nutty professor clothing choices as the Doctor have made him an unlikely sex symbol, yet his unconventionally handsome looks somehow set the show on fire in the US, helped in no small part by his photogenic assistant, Scottish actress Karen Gillen, as Amy Pond. With the series' profile suddenly boosted by the BBC America screenings, it came as no surprise that an American comics publisher would be very interested in acquiring the rights to the series. Enter IDW, and once again we turn the stage over to Mr Stephen Lacey. IDW publishing
2: are no strangers to the value of a licensed property. In January 2008, they produced the first Doctor Who comics for the American comic book market, when they asked Doctor Who novelist, script editor... Big Finish producer and former Doctor Who magazine editor Gary Russell to write a miniseries. This was followed up in 2009 by the miniseries The Forgotten featuring all the Doctors and most of the companions to date. Art was provided, mostly, by Why the Last Man artist Pierre Guerra and was written by fan-turned-pro Tony Lee. Tony turned out to be IDW's secret weapon, a long-time fan of the series but more crucially, a writer well-versed in working with both licensed properties and the comic book format. He made the prospect of an ongoing 22-page monthly Doctor Who series, a real one, and across two volumes two Doctors, a whole host of original and television companions, he blended elements of the classic and modern series in a way that almost every other medium has been unable to do. An unfortunately ironic twist, however, British Doctor Who fans have been, for the most part, unable to purchase Tony's work on the IDW series, as the licensing rights for original Doctor Who comic strips lie with Panini and Doctor Who magazine in the UK, meaning that IDW have been unable to distribute Doctor Who comics to the United Kingdom, which is a shame. Other writers, such as Joshua hale Fialkov and Andy Diggle, have also contributed to the series, but when IDW finished publishing Doctor Who at the end of this year, losing the license after six years, it will be Tony's contributions that will be remembered most of all. Work like this Eagle Award-winning story.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Stephen also picked our next choice, Doctor Who Volume 2, issue 12, cover dated sometime, I don't know, IDW don't even seem to do cover dates. Uh, came with three covers. On one, the Doctor is surrounded by robotic Father Christmases, complete with beards, and is drawn by Mark Buckingham. We've met him. Yeah. Lovely fella. All of them. It's very good, a lovely little Christmas cover, and looks very much like it could have stepped out of an episode. The second is a photo cover of Matt Smith as the Doctor. It's fine. Uh, What do
0: you think of the photo cover? It's Uh, a picture of Matt Smith, isn't it? Yeah. I I think the the female demographic. Probably like that cover more. Yeah. With his comedy her. Mm.
1: All right, fair enough. And the final cover is by Paul Grist, which is very cartoony and funny. The Doctor is standing in front of a melting snowman saying, I wear Santa hats now. Santa hats are cool. Which is a play on one of Smith's sayings in the show. Bow ties are cool. fezzes are cool. Stetsons are cool. Etc. Etc. it's the best of the lot and I think capturing the playfulness of Smith's portrayal I like that one a lot I think that's better than the the Martin Buckingham cover
0: I prefer the Martin Buckingham one do I mm-hmm. I think that more suits the issue it does but I didn't like the art uh, in the issue did you not I didn't did you not like the Paul Grist stuff alright
1: fair enough okay. send your hate mail take it's comics <laughs> at virginmedia.com entitled Silent Night with a K this was written by Tony Lee with art by as I just said Paul Grist The Doctor rushes out of the TARDIS, trouser legs rolled up, bucket and spade in hand to be greeted by... snow flurries. Once again, the TARDIS has took him where he needs to be, not where he wants to be. Quickly changing to more suitable attire, the Doctor witnesses a collection of androids dressed in Father Christmas outfits harassing the real Father Christmas and his reindeer. Father Christmas is putting up a brave fight knocking one android's head clean off and the Doctor rushes in to help destroying the android's weapons with his sonic screwdriver. Father Christmas is now trying to prevent the androids from stealing his sack of presents but is unable to do so and the androids jump into a shuttle sled. The Doctor and Father Christmas give chase in Father Christmas's sleigh, evading the dreaded turbo lasers, and they manage to get alongside the shuttle sled. Using his sonic screwdriver again, the Doctor nullifies the androids' weapons, but to escape, the androids toss Father Christmas's sack to the ground. Father Christmas and the Doctor retrieve the sack, but the Doctor's sonic is damaged, and the reindeer plum took it out. The Doctor rushes off, and seconds later the TARDIS dematerialises, and the Doctor, now wearing a Father Christmas hat, emerges, and he and Father Christmas divvy up the naughty and nice lists and get to work. Along the way, presents are left, jammy dodges are consumed, and the doctor even manages one of his favourite tricks, leaving next week's winning lottery numbers in the pocket of a homeless mother and her child. But Father Christmas captures the android stealing the sack of presents again and gives them a jolly good telling off. After he's finished though, he gives them their presents pirate dress-up costumes, and they run off now dressed as pirates, happy and content. The Doctor takes Father Christmas back to the Antarctic, and they watch the sunrise before Father Christmas gives the Doctor a present, a brand new sonic screwdriver. The TARDIS warps off to another adventure. The first page is typical of Doctor Who. The TARDIS has obviously not taken the Doctor where he wanted to go, it never does. No. Does it? I really like that first page. I think that first page is brilliant. The TARDIS materialises. He comes running out into the snow with nothing on his feet and he's, 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 uh, his trousers rolled up. And it's. Uh, there's a part of it like, why has he gone to the beach on his own with a bucket and spade? You think it took Amy and Rory with him? Well, it's, it's Matt Smith, Doctor. Because he's that's a little bit insane. A little bit. Fair enough. Um, I don't think, unless I missed something we ever find out who these androids are or what
0: they want, did we? No. Alright, fair enough. But apparently they wanted pirate outfits. Yeah, apparently they just wanted pirate outfits and then <laughs> yeah. they were happy. Yeah. <laughs> Next time
1: there is an android invasion, we'll know exactly what to do. <laughs> yeah. Pirate outfits. Uh, they seem to want Father Christmas' sack as well, but did they want it so no one else can have it? Or did they just want their own pirate outfit? Maybe they did. They, just want, they, just they wanted to ruin Christmas. Christmas for everybody. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. The space dogfight between Father Christmas's sleigh and the shuttle sled, the androids have is pretty cool. A very Star Warsy. Mm. I quite liked that. I don't know whether you did.
0: It did it? was fine. Was it? Was it fine? It was. It was fine. The repeated panels on that page. Are there repeated panels? They look very, very, very. All cool. right. Fair enough. We'll slag him off for them then, because we don't like that trick. Yeah. It? Well, Matt Smith looks repeated the snow and the sonic screwdriver
1: um. yeah they fiddled around with the, son- well, the sonic screwdriver they've just changed the lighting effects on haven't they yeah but yeah you may be right it may be three, dif- may be three panels that have uh, been repeated and doctored ever so slightly the doctor's done more strenuous things than this with his sonic screwdriver mm. and it survived
0: this was again why did the sonic screwdriver backfire and blow up no idea. it just did. yeah, uh, right. overuse. So to make the ending that much that much better. All
1: right, fair enough. Matt Smith's doctor has had a thing for hats throughout his run. He likes his stets and his fez and here his father Christmas hat. It rather suits him and compliments his comedy her. I thought <laughs> he looked quite nice in that comedy her Comedy her. <laughs> That's what he's got, isn't it? His her as a life of its own. <laughs> the doctor discards the naughty list. I presume that the names on the list, jeff Thompson, Sean Lyon, Rick Marshall and Barnaby Edwards, are in-jokes, but the only one I recognise is Sean Lyon, who did used to write a couple of Doctor Who novels and works on the Red Dwarf
0: magazine. Maybe he got rid of it, because you see the bit where his arm's covering it up. Yeah. His name's on the... And has he been naughty? Is that what you think? Maybe it has. The 50th anniversary will reference this issue. (laughs) Sancho will show up and say, your name was on that list, Doctor. You think? And John Hurt will go, you found me out. (laughs) John Hurt's not a Doctor. (laughs) Moving on, the Doctor
1: finding the jammy Dodgers. I thought it was a really nice scene. As shown in his fourth incarnation, the Doctor has a bit of a sweet tooth. And with this current version, it's a preference for
0: jammy Dodgers. A biscuit with two layers, the middle of which is a thin layer of jam. Mm, I I liked a bit where they're having f- uh, fish fish fingers and custard. Do fish have fingers? <laughs> and, and he's on about, oh, I've gone back in time and made loads of mixtures of savoury <laughs> dessert. Like what? Ever heard of rice pudding? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I do like that Santa's a bit, uh, and the doctor's, they left them out for you, dude. <laughs> it's not stealing. Which I thought was, I, I liked that a lot. I do like, uh, I, I have like Matt Smith's predilection for jammy dodgers. The Doctor also, on his rounds, leaves a present for Amy and Rory Pond, his companions of the time who got married. The Doctor always called them the Ponds, even though Rory's surname was Williams. And Rory, despite his protestations, never got the Doctor to call them the Williams. So to see the Doctor cross off Pond and replace it with Williams, I thought was quite a lovely little touch.
0: Hmm. Was this during the five years? You I have covering? no
1: idea when this came out, because there was no cover date. Yeah. I presume it was Christmas 2012 last year, Mm. but that would mean Amy and Rory had left, but they won't have known that when they were making the show, this comic, will they? Because that was the year that they split the series into two. Was it? Yeah. I'm just assuming that that was the five years he wasn't with them. Alright. Yeah, it may have been. It may have been take place before that, but he's... No, yeah, because he's still wearing the clothes. He's still wearing the bow tie and tweed and he would change his clothes later on, wouldn't he? Would it? After Amy and Rory leave, yeah he changes his clothes he makes them a bit darker
0: darker
1: so yeah so this is obviously before he loses Amy and Rory throughout Smith's tenure as the doctor he's mysteriously made people millionaires through fortunate lottery wins even as was the case in the episode The Christmas Carol when there wasn't a lottery here we see him leave the numbers of next week's lottery winning ticket in a homeless woman's pocket His heart's strings tugged by the fact she's sleeping rough with her child. Makes no difference if she hasn't got a pound to buy the ticket, though. Mm. So he's just left her a winning lottery (laughs) numbers that she can't afford to go and buy a ticket from. Has he left her a quid as well? Make
0: it that much more heartbreaking. I
1: would imagine he slipped a pound in her pocket as well. I would have thought that he did that for her. But we don't actually see that he did that. No. So nobody's going to accept that as a winning lottery ticket, are they? (laughs) So you wrote him on a piece of paper. Did you buy a ticket? Yeah. Unlucky. I wonder if
0: those were actually the right lottery ticket numbers. I, I think this for this Christmas we should put those
1: numbers <laughs> on and see whether we win or not. And then if we didn't, we'll be on a beach and in 20% sipping pina coladas. <laughs> Apparently, the androids only wanted to dress up as pirates. That was it. Yeah. I was impressed by Grist's ability to make the featureless faces look happy. On the robots, mm. I thought I thought that was that was lovely. Um, I did like as well that the Doctor gets caught by a couple of kids delivering presents into the house, and he tries to pass himself off as Father Christmas by blowing her into his cheeks and puffing out his stomach. Mm. I would have liked to have seen Smith do that on television because I think he would have played that for every bit of comedy he could. The only line of dialogue in this entire issue, after the lovely page where the Doctor and Father Christmas just watch the sunrise is the Doctor breaking the fourth wall and addresses us, the reader, just to wish us Merry Christmas. And he would have said Merry Christmas, not Happy Christmas. Yeah. Because it's not Happy Christmas and a Merry New Year, is it? No, it's Merry (laughs) Christmas and a Happy New Year. Get it right, Doctor. (laughs) I, I thought this was excellent. I really did think this was an excellent event that would have made for a pretty decent Christmas episode of the show. There isn't any reason for this to be a silent issue and would be interested in knowing what the reason behind that choice was, as it seems quite unusual, given that Matt Smith's doctor talks almost constantly, and at super speed. The art is lovely throughout, as with most dialogue-less issues, it actually takes longer to read, as you have to look at the pictures to follow the art, to follow the story. Fortunately, I thought Paul Grist was more than up to the task. What did you think, Michael?
0: I I, I didn't... it was fine, I just didn't enjoy it as much. Did you not? No. I yeah. thought this was lovely. I thought this was really nice. What did you not like about it? I don't know, just something. Excellent, good. It could be the, the, <laughs> it could be the whole Christmas story thing.
1: What, with it not being Christmas yet? You just yeah. You're just not in the mood yet?
0: But maybe not yet, yeah. but I just don't like it. Christmas stories have to be really good for me to like them, <laughs> and they have to be near Christmas as well. well so. We're near-ish to Christmas, only a month away. Well, it's only raining outside. Oh,
1: it'll be raining at Christmas, dude. Oh, probably, yeah. All right, fair enough. Finally, wrapping up this celebration of Doctor Who's 50th birthday, a look at one of the few Doctor Who comic stories I'd actually read. This was not recommended by Stephen, who I don't think has a very high opinion of this series. But this was me. This was all me. In February 2012, IDW announced they were presenting an epic science fiction crossover with the two largest franchises in TV history. Yes, the Doctor was going to meet the crew of the USS Enterprise. Primarily, the plot of this eight-issue miniseries would centre on the 11th incarnation of the Doctor, meeting the crew of the next generation, which, while still interesting, wasn't what made my inner five-year-old go Squire! What did was that Issue 4 of the series would show a previously unreferenced meeting between my favourite Doctor, Fourth Incarnation version, and my favourite Star Trek series, the original. The idea that Tom Baker may offer William Shatner a jelly baby was so exciting, and actually that alone interested me in the series. The team-up would take place in issue 4 of Star Trek The Next Generation slash Doctor Who Assimilation Squad. It was written by Scott and David Tipton with Tony Lee, and had art by J.K. Woodward
0: and the Sharp Brothers. It took three people to write it. Apparently so. Shame it wasn't very good, then.
1: Well, uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> Lovely listeners, there's a tease fire. There are three covers. J.K. Woodward draws the main event, James T. Kirk squaring up against the Cybermen and not coming off too well, it has to be said, whilst the Doctor and Spock bring up the rear. The next was a pastiche of the First Contact movie poster, but with the Doctor Amy and Rory in lieu of Picard, Data and the Borg Queen, and the Cybermen in lieu of the Borg. The third is a Pencil's version of the second, and not really much to write home about. I prefer the second one. Did you? Mm. Did you prefer the pastiche of the first contact cover? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Poster, not cover. Borg ships converge on the Enterprise, but these are assimilated Cybermen alongside the Borg. The Enterprise uses the old hide inside a nebula trick to evade the cyberborg, as the Doctor tells Captain Picard all about them. Picard orders Data to look up any and all information on these Cybermen, and Data comes up with an old visual from the original Enterprise. No, not that Jonathan Archer filth. The proper original Enterprise, commanded by James T. Kirk. The Doctor suddenly experiences a memory flash, and we are back at Stardate 3368.5. A shuttle lands on April 3, where contact has been lost with a Federation archaeological team investigating the ruins of a long-dead civilization. Upon landing, the landing party of Kirk, Spock, McCoy and Scotty are greeted with Professor Jefferson Whitmore, who seems perplexed that they are here. Whilst the radiation belt around the planet does prevent subspace signals, as it prevents transporters, they thought they had the problem beaten. He promises to investigate, but whilst they're here, they may as well have a look around. Whitmore shows them around, but Scotty and Kirk are not convinced, as the people all seem to be acting like drones, and later, under cover of night, they return to investigate. Trying to break into the facility, they are assisted by a strange man with a long-flowing, multicoloured scarf. Calling himself only The Doctor, his sonic screwdriver makes short work of the lock, and inside the staff are asleep, stood up. Dot McCoy spots an earpiece that seems to be blocking all sensory input to the brain, but as McCoy removes one and the employee comes around, Cybermen enter the building. They fight off Kirk and the Doctor, destroying Kirk's phaser, and as they attempt to beat down the crew, the Doctor happens upon Kirk's communicator and notices the grill is gold. Quickly removing it, he grinds it up and tosses it at the Cyber Leader, and it interferes with his respiratory system, allowing Spock and Scotty to bring down the remaining Cybermen with phasers set on full power. In the kerfuffle, the Doctor disappears into the TARDIS, leaving Kirk with a mystery. Back on the Enterprise D, the Doctor comes round and deciding they need to talk to someone with a little more experience than them. Picard takes him to Guinan. Could you tell I didn't care at all about the next generation a bits little, of this little. story? Yeah. <laughs> the Bride of... Continuity and nitpicks! <laughs> the Doctor is still travelling alone... Which means that his fourth incarnation had a lot of adventures in between the deadly assassin and the face of evil. Trekwise, Stardate 3368.5 sets this in between the first and second seasons of the original show. And there are enough gaps in the Doctor-Amy-Rory
0: timeline for this to have taken place anywhere that they want it to. Mm. Pretty much. Maybe. Uh, He needed to get Jelly Babies in the first one we covered (laughs) because... The, the Enterprise crew had them all. You gave them all to Spock. Yeah, Spock's fascination with them. <laughs> Who's got none left? <laughs> Spock stuffed
1: his face with them. Uh, the next generation stuff is all painted artwork, presumably by J.K. Woodward, and it's technically fine. Certainly the spaceship stuff looks pretty good, but it looks a bit stiff. off proportion. Yeah, and, and stiff. It looks like, to me, like there's a lot of photo reference going on. But it looks like he's just stuck different photos together. Yeah. doesn't, And then drawn them. And not
0: really allowed for the fact that some of the proportions may be a bit off. Especially when people start showing up out of nowhere. Like the Doctor will just show up out of nowhere and everyone's like, Oh, Doctor, where were you? Well, he is there on panel one. Then disappears. And then disappears. Yeah, because he's then, not stood there on the next panel. Amy and Rory just show up out of nowhere. Yeah, I did think the
1: cyber... Borg was pretty cool. A Cyberman with Borg implants.
0: I like how on the left it's a Borg, on the right it's the Cyberman, and Mm. in the middle... It's a Cyberborg. Would that mean together they're a Cyborg? Very good. Yes. (laughs) I like that. It's it's very clever. I'm glad
1: you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In fact, you know, this part of the story's serviceable, but it's not really anything new. We've seen all this dialogue before, and even the trick of hiding the Enterprise in a conveniently located nebula to escape the bad guys is something that's been done numerous times. The problem with this scene, really, is that if you have data, there's no real need for the doctor.
0: Yeah. Is that they both essentially serve the same function? The, the dialogue seemed very stiff as well. Did you think? Yeah. Well, in this, in the Next Generation parts, definitely.
1: Yeah, but the di- I thought the dialogue was okay, but there's a much better feel for the next generation characters than the Doctor Who characters and like you said yeah Rory and Amy come off as very stiff yeah and when you're next to the next generation cast and you're coming off as stiff there's (laughs) a problem
0: yeah it was just the dialogue was really stiff it's like what are they Cybermen what are they bad things (laughs) and what do they do kill people what are they made of
1: (laughs) they are bad things okay
0: Uh, the doctor doesn't
1: remember his encounter with the crew of the enterprise originally implying that the time stream is being rewritten in some way
0: maybe he just forget we're all forgetful and he is 900 odd years old you forget a thousand things every day yeah so do you Apparently so. Okay. I learned that from video games.
1: <laughs> well, who says you don't learn anything from video yeah, yeah, games? Yeah. All right, fair enough. But we're not really reading this for the Next Generation crew, or even the Doctor Amy or Rory. We're reading this for the Fourth Doctor, meeting Captain James, T. Kirk, and Mr. Spock. I did like that the art changes here, completely ditching the painted style of the Next Gen chapters and adopts a more colourful approach, better suited to the original vibe from Star Trek in the 60s. We don't really get a gist of exactly why Kirk and Scotty are suspicious though after they land and have a walk round I, 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 I,
0: I was pretty fine with them I was content that they were the good guys yeah there, there was an inkling there that Kirk and
1: Scotty are like no no something's going on and <laughs> as a reader like, drive the like what yeah. where did you get there was no clue was there no that they were all zombies of some kind even maybe, Spock's like okay maybe
0: because I saw the earpiece when they were being showed right yeah
1: and McCoy, it's in the earpiece, and then when they came out later, said, did you notice they all had those
0: weird earpieces and in? And Spock had raised his and Spock had gone. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been, that would have been fine. You know the ship they go down on? Excuse me? The, the, no. <laughs> the, the little... The little shuttlecraft. Yeah, the little shuttle. Yeah. Wasn't that from Next
1: Generation? No, that shuttlecraft's from the original Star Trek. That's the Galileo, I think. Why don't they just beam down? Yeah, it's the Galileo. Fair enough. Which, I'm sure the Galileo was destroyed... In an episode of Star Trek well, in the continuity first season.
0: And nitpicks. Yeah, I should have mentioned that in
1: continuity <laughs> and nitpicks, I wasn't I'm sure the Galileo got destroyed in so an wh- episode. Wh-
0: why couldn't we just beam down?
1: Because they do say that the subspace interference around the planet oh, yeah. prevents transmissions and beaming. All right, okay. So I'll give them a, I'll, I'll accept
0: that. Well, maybe you know your little continuity nitpicks. Yeah, maybe it's because just like how the release order isn't the chronological order, this is anywhere...
1: Uh, certainly, from a Star Trek point of view, this could take place anywhere. That star date places it in between season one and two, but the star dates in the original show were just made up. Yeah. <laughs> the the writers have said we just made them up. We weren't fair paying enough. any attention to the star dates in the original series. So, alright. Yeah. If we accept that this is, you know, end of the first season, whatever, <laughs> maybe it takes place before the Galileo's brought up star date, be damned. Well, they must do <laughs> Yeah, because the Galileo's <laughs> there. So, quite clearly, the Galileo's not been blown up. <laughs> That's fair enough. Uh, the moment we've been waiting for finally occurs on page 11. Of, of issue 3. Of issue 3, uh, The doctor arrives and offers Spock a jelly baby. He also uses a sonic screwdriver to break into the facility. Spock's reaction to jelly babies, a gelatin confectionery dusted with starch and moulded into the shape of a small child. Fascinating. It's probably the <laughs> finest line <laughs> of the issue. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really... And my only problem with that we didn't actually get to see a close-up of Spot raising his eyebrow and tasting it. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to see Spock eat a jelly bear. That's what I wanted, but, you know. In true Doctor fashion, he lets Kirk just assume he's a member of the team. Yeah. And he just doesn't correct him. He doesn't say he's wrong. He doesn't yeah. say, no, no, no. He just says, oh, yeah, I was just around. <laughs> the Doctor does that a lot. Yeah. He just lets people assume he's supposed to be there. And it works in his favour. And it always works psychic in his favour. Yeah, the psychic pepper. Yeah. Uh, the fight with the Cybermen. Kurt gets in a number of his signature fighting moves. Oh god, it was hilarious. We yeah. did these jump you kick get to The, the face. double-fisted <laughs> punch. The <that laughs> leap at your opponent and kick him. Yeah, we get all of them. He's <laughs> uh, going. You know, Kurt can, can do the high jump. <laughs> Street
0: fighter, this time. <laughs> Street Fighter Star Trek mod. I want to see Kirk fight (laughs) (laughs) Ryu. Fire beams, everyone. That would would
1: actually be cool, because I honestly think James T. Kirk would kick his ass. (laughs) Because he's James T. Kirk. The Doctor lets Kirk do all of this, before ultimately thinks his way out of the problem. It's exceptionally lucky the communicator's grids were made of gold, and I don't recall if this was established on the original Star Trek, but it may have been. And all of a sudden, Spock's phaser on full power destroys the cyber, when earlier on, it had no effect at all. Because of a lack of breathing. But I presume that he was just playing with different settings on his phaser as well. <laughs> and ultimately, the full power phaser setting... It's like a phone with Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the full power phaser setting kills them. Uh, the Doctor manages to bugger off without being seen and warps off to another adventure. To go and get his jelly babies. Yeah, to go and get some more jelly babies in the first story. It's all cyclical, yeah. isn't it? I mean, he may stop at Zaga 6 on the way <laughs> just to make the two stories line up and then we're instantly back into the next generation stuff which we're not really bothered about although the doctor's line the 11th doctor's line about not being anywhere near 100 years old was funny because mm. Riker says to him you would, you'd have to be over 100 now to have been there then and the doctor's oh don't be silly I'm nowhere near 100 <laughs> yeah. which was I like that line I thought that was funny I've got to confess, though, I was actually a little bit disappointed with this. I found the ending pretty
0: strange. Well, the ending's presumably
1: just leading well, on to yeah. the next issue well, of the I story. Isn't how it how
0: is taking Matt Smith to Whoopi Goldberg going to solve anyone's problems? Oh,
1: presumably Guynan's going to know the time lots.
0: Because oh, Guyman knows everybody, of doesn't he, yeah.
1: in the story. So. I mean, I don't think I read beyond this. I think I read up to Tom (laughs) Baker's appearance, and then I gave up with the You were just happy with that. I was happy with Tom Baker showing up, yeah. Uh, Whilst I acknowledge the Next Generation 11th Doctor stuff is a small part of what is a larger plot, it's not really furthered Mm. in any way in this issue. The real fun here should have been the Fourth Doctor's interaction with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And yet, that just seems lacking somehow. There's none of Tom Baker's natural charm captured on the page, and as I noted, it seems the writers had a much better handle on the Star Trek characters of each generation than they had of the Doctor. Where was the scene between Spock and the Doctor? Where was the interaction between McCoy and the Doctor? Where was the quite natural conflict that would arise between Captain Kirk's methods and the Doctor's methods, which are quite different? The art's okay, the characters are all recognisable they just felt a bit flat and a bit of a missed opportunity. Mm. What did you think?
0: I didn't like it. Did you not like it I at all? not really, no. It, no. Was, it, was, it was very, very stiff.
1: Well, my reason for picking it was, as I said, it's the Doctor meeting the Star Trek crew. He wanted it to be something Yeah, else. and it's my Doctor yeah. meeting my Star Trek crew. And I wanted... I mean, maybe I'm criticising it from the point of view of it's not what I wanted it to be, Rather than what it is,
0: mm. but what I want to know is no. because you said it's your doctor and your Star Trek, Mm-mm. that makes sense that Tom Baker would be with the original. Yeah. So why is Matt Smith meeting the crew from a Star Trek that is twenty years old? Why is he not meeting the JJ J. Abrams crew? Because the JJ J. Abrams crew suck. It doesn't matter. <laughs> let's face it so sort to of the next generation <laughs> No, the next generation crew are much more
1: interesting than the J.J. Abrams but crew but
0: it's the times so and considering they already have the rights to the J.J. Yeah, Abrams yeah but if track, they
1: had done that they wouldn't have been able to have the fourth Doctor meet Kirk and Spock and Mackay so they would have yeah no, they wouldn't because the whole time thing they alright so, so Dom, Tom Baker would have gone to the alternate timeline
0: Yeah, the uh, the alternate timeline that was the same timeline, but exactly the same until it stopped being the same timeline. Yeah, when
1: Vulcan blew up. Yeah. And at no point did they think, wait a minute, (laughs) there's a timeline there where Vulcan didn't blow up. Let's try and fix things (laughs) so that Vulcan doesn't blow up. Yeah. Oh but no 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 the carrots in the film just go Ah oh, that's just the way things are now. <laughs> Stuff happens, doesn't it? Let's go
0: <laughs> And this is just terrible. Let's just remake all movies, guys, come on. Yeah, and then the next film, let's do <laughs> calm. Star Trek 3. Speak and wait, drops. Andrew, Andrew, come back. No, it'll be good <laughs> Honest. This time Spockle Shot Khan. <laughs> and Kirk will die. <laughs>
1: Oh, dear God. Uh, Anyway, moving on. (laughs) In conclusion... That is our look at the various incarnations of comics based upon the adventures of one of science fiction television's most enduring icons. With very special thanks to Stephen Lacey. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen, for contributing your comics knowledge and thus saving me having to do any research <laughs> for this episode. Well, a few little bits and pieces, but you know, in just a few short days, the show will air a special fiftieth anniversary episode of The Day of the Doctor, in which Matt Smith's eleventh incarnation will team up with David. 10th, 10th, for what will be a huge media event all around the world.
0: Not only that, but he'll meet up with Doctor. Shut up! Or, uh, I'm not having 8. that. No.
1: I'm not having that. He's a doctor because that'll just mess <laughs> everything up. Oh,
0: don't shaking the status quo, or is that not a status quo change? Shut up!
1: Move it up! Following this, Smith will take one more journey in the TARDIS on Christmas Day 2013 before he hands over the keys to the next incarnation of the Doctor embodied by actor Peter Capaldi. The programme's ability to constantly reinvent itself has proven to be its greatest strength, unencumbered as it is by ageing, overpriced actors, stale story ideas and the iron grip of one particular creator. The BBC perhaps still have no idea why the show is so popular, and there is a feeling that if they mishandled it before, then they may again. But last time, the show failed to move with the times, and that's when it started to falter. This time, the show is leading the way in how to handle a multimedia Empire all over the world. He's been many faces but one man, a staunch anti conformist and a childhood hero. He explores the universe in his blue box, his only constant companion, making the world a better place for his being.
0: Who is he? He's the Doctor. Doctor who? Very good. I like that. <laughs> doctor what? That, that's new. <laughs> <laughs>
2: my dear it's time we were off he sees the threads that join the universe together and mends them when they break
0: i'm not a human being i walk in eternity. You will be a star in
1: eternity i'm the doctor by the way what's your name rose nice to meet you rose run for your life
0: i'm your new assistant
1: oh no
2: Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension?
1: it's the TARDIS. It's my home. TARDIS. Time and relative dimension in space.
2: This type's not
1: really my force. There are some corners of the universe which have read the most
0: terrible things. I am usually referred to as the master. things which act against everything that we believe in. I I shall kill you all now. Is that finger loaded? At first... I have more important tasks to perform. You no, know, just
2: once I'd like to meet an alien menace that wasn't immune to
0: bullets. I'm the Doctor. I'm a time limit. I'm from the planet Gallifrey, the constellation of Casteburst. I'm 903 years old, and the man is going to save your life and six billion people
2: on the planet below. Could touch the alien
0: sand and hear the cries of strange birds and watch them wheel. In another sky would that satisfy you you're a classic example of the inverse ratio between the size of the mouth and the size of the dread
2: courage isn't just a matter of not being frightened you know it's being afraid and doing what you have to do anyway uh,
1: victoria i think this is one of those instances where discretion is the better part of planner jamie has an idea come along everything's going to be all right you haven't changed
2: Still finding menace in your own shadow? You may disguise your features, but you will never disguise your intent.
1: You can't just change what I'd look like without consulting me.
2: Regeneration. A complete new life cycle. The best of the body of mine is wearing a bit thin. That's not
0: me at all. I'm
2: a genius. What's for tea? Tea. 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 If you're calling the butler. I'm very partial to tea and muffins. I say. What a wonderful butler, he's so violent. Doctor, you're being childish. Well, of course I am.
1: There's no point in being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes. Logic, my dear Zoe, merely enables one to be wrong with authority.
2: Ah, oh, you've noticed that, have you? Well, I mean, anyone can talk sense as long as that's understood. You and I are going to get on splendidly.
1: I'm definitely not the man I was.
0: It all started out as a mild curiosity in the junkyard. And now it's turned out to be quite a great spirit of adventure, don't you think? So, all of time and space, everything that ever happened or ever will, where do you want to start?
1: Our lives are different to anybody else's. That's the exciting thing
2: nobody in the universe can do what we're doing
1: and we'll be back next week when we start our celebration of the Silver Age looking forward to that yeah, yeah that's see you next week bye bye goodbye
0: bye <laughs>
1: is a the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at 2TrueFreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the 2 True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.haykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.